On October 24th, 2020, the, fall, the call finally came. The call that had been long awaited. Two days before, a little boy had entered the world, and today was the day that he could leave the hospital and enter a family prepared for him. The nursery, nursery was ready, the bag was packed, and then the phone rang again. Not an hour after the first call, the news came that everything had changed. The nursery would stand silent, the bag would be set aside, and the little boy would enter a family prepared for him, just not ours. And in the bleak darkness of that moment, as the day we had prayed for and anticipated descended into sorrow, we wept on the living room floor, clinging to the passage that I would preach the next day, that says in part, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In that moment, we were confronted with the reality that the Lord's ways are not our ways, and our understanding of his purposes is severely limited in this life. In that moment, we clung to the only constant, God, our refuge, our Father. The truth is that all of our lives are testimonies to the limitations of our plans and purposes as well as our knowledge and wisdom. If you don't quite believe me, think about it. We make plans and we're unable to keep them, though some we certainly do. We label events as so random or as happening for no good reason when they don't quite go exactly the way we'd planned. We speak in apocalyptic or cataclysmic language when our preferred political party is toppled from power or when we hear of wars or other violence in the world. And we struggle to understand why bad things happen to good people. Honestly, we sound more frequently like Solomon in Ecclesiastes than we do Solomon in Proverbs when we say things like the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. But this perspective isn't the perspective of the whole counsel of God's word. And it's certainly not the perspective of Proverbs. As we continue our survey of various themes throughout the book of Proverbs, we must address the reality that God actively rules over all things for his glory and our good. That is to say that God is sovereign. One theologian described sovereignty as the foundation of Christian theology or the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth. Furthermore, he says, it's the Christian strength and comfort amid the storms of life. Christian's strength and comfort amid the storms of life. Now, seeking to understand the sovereignty of God is an effort at plumbing some of the greatest depths of the nature and character of God. But it's a worthy endeavor. As we were reminded already from Romans 11, Paul praises the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God and marvels at God's unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways, concluding with the rhetorical question, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? 
Proverbs 25, 2 tells us that it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search them out. So we face a daunting task as we endeavor to understand God's sovereignty more fully. Because of this, we can humbly acknowledge that there's no possible way that we can exhaust this topic, right? There's too much for us to take in in one morning together. But what we can do is seek to draw on some key proverbs to better understand the far-reaching implications of this immense topic. But before we examine proverbs, we want to have a definition. What is sovereignty? How should we think about this word? We hear it tossed about, but what does it actually mean? Well, first, we should acknowledge that if we soften or reject God's sovereignty, we're left with some pretty undesirable alternatives. One author summarizes it this way, saying, the biblical doctrine is not deism, which teaches that God basically made everything and then abandoned it, nor is it pantheism, which teaches that creation doesn't have a real distinct existence, but it's just part of God. The biblical doctrine doesn't teach that events in creation are determined by chance or randomness, nor are they determined by impersonal fate or determinism, but by God, who is the personal yet infinitely powerful creator and Lord. In other words, God, who made all things and is distinct from his creation, has not left things to chance or fate, but actively cares for and directs all things for his purposes. Now, we've also said that uh, the terms sovereignty and providence are often used interchangeably. And that often shows up in definitions. So one definition offered by John Calvin in his Institutes is providence, saying that it means not that by which God idly observes from heaven what takes place on earth, but that by which, as keeper of the keys, he governs all events. Or in the 1689 London Baptist Confession, it says, God is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he has most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do with them whatever he pleases. Or our own confessional statement, the Baptist faith and message, speaks of God as Father reigning with providential care over his universe, his creatures, the flow of the stream of human history, according to the purpose of of his grace. Quite simply, God's sovereignty is his exercise of rule as sovereign or king over his creation. Reflecting on God's sovereignty, the authors of that same 1689 London Baptist Confession say that God is due from angels and men whatever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe to the creator. And whatever he is further pleased to require of them. In other words, God is worthy of worship because he is creator and sovereign king of all. So what we've been doing this morning in beholding God and praising him for who he is and what he's done, that's the right response to God's sovereignty or his reign. It's also uh, one of our primary goals during this time as well. Every week as we hear the word of God unfolded that we would see God as high and lifted up and worship him. We can trust and delight in him no matter our circumstances. Wherever you find yourself this morning, we can see him as high and exalted as our father who rules over creation. For we know that 
For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. Acknowledging God's sovereign rule frees us to humbly submit our entire existence to him, our strength and comfort amid the storms of this life. The only one who can lead us through many dangers, toils, and snares, and finally, safely home. So while scripture teaches us that God actively rules over all things for his glory and our good. This morning, we'll see in Proverbs that God is sovereign over our plans and purposes, over kings and kingdoms, and over wrongs and randomness. Proverbs teaches us specifically that God is sovereign over our plans and purposes, over the kings and kingdoms of this earth, and over those things that we see and don't understand because they appear to us wrong and random. Quite simply, we could summarize this as saying God actively rules over the personal, the public, and the problematic. And my hope is that understanding God's sovereignty in these realms will deepen our faith and strengthen our trust and enliven our worship as we rest in the comfort, the preserving refuge of our sovereign God. So with that in mind, let's Return to Proverbs 16 that Darcy read for us just a moment ago. The Lord's activity is the focal point of Proverbs 16, 1 through 9. With the exception of verse 8, the Lord is specifically mentioned in every verse of this passage. Now, this strong emphasis on God's active role in the world serves to remind us that we're not the masters of our fate or the captain of our soul. Beginning in verse 1, Solomon asserts that though we are in a sense the owner of our plans, it is the Lord who brings about even the very words of our lips. Verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So lest we think that we're free from God's sovereign rule, save in the big, grandiose moments of our life, Solomon asserts that we can't even utter a word apart from the sovereign oversight of the one who made our tongues. We're responsible for the words we speak, but none of them cross our lips without the intimate knowledge of God according to his plan and purpose. In verse 9, bookends this section, verses 1 through 9 in Proverbs 16, saying a similar thing, that the heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In both verses, The heart features prominently in our plans and purposes. We know that by nature our hearts are deceitful and sick. So I think when we read of the heart, we're rightly skeptical, rightly cautious about what trusting our hearts may lead to. To elevate the desires of our hearts in their natural state is to strike out on our own in opposition to God. But for those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in the Lord, guarding our hearts, and becoming godly, as Mike reminded us two weeks ago, this is a liberating truth. For those who have been made new, we can actually bear good fruit from our hearts. We can make plans that please the Lord. Jesus said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Or consider the promise we were reminded of in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That if we acknowledge the Lord in all our ways, 
If we trust in the Lord with all our hearts and we do not lean on our own understanding, the Lord himself will direct our paths. Knowing that the Lord is the one ultimately guiding our steps should be a deep source of rich comfort for us as Christians. It's not that we're being instructed here not to plan, right? Plans are not viewed here as negative, just under the umbrella of God's sovereign oversight. As James reminded us, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, which was the last sermon that we heard before everything shut down in 2020. A good reminder that God is sovereign over our plans and purposes. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, we boast in our arrogance, as we were reminded of and as we confessed together earlier this morning. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So we're to make plans, but our plans are to be made humbly, according to the revealed will of God, in line with his commandments, and with the understanding that because our knowledge is limited, our plans will be established insofar as they accord with the plans and purposes of God. So in this way, we're freed to make plans and freed to trust God's plan. Now, vital to a proper perspective on the sovereign providence of God over our plans and purposes is the sober recognition that the Lord's direction doesn't exempt us from trials in this life. Most likely, none of us plan to suffer. None of us woke up last week and began to fill out our planner and said, on Wednesday at 10, I will receive news that will cause great pain. But we all know that we experience suffering in this life. As Christians, we're not promised that our lives will be easy. In fact, whether in our everyday lives or in our witness to Christ, we're told that we will face trials. Jesus said as much when he said, in this world you will have tribulation. And Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So a sober-minded submission to the sovereignty of God enables us to hope in God even as we suffer. Knowing that nothing happens to us apart from God's sovereign will can fill us with joy in the midst of trials. As James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In God's providence, trials are a part of the completion of his plan for our life. God intends trials to bear fruit in us that would not otherwise come. God is working in and through you for his glory and your ultimate good. God has not forsaken you when you suffer. We've mentioned it already, but it bears repeating that our plans and our purposes are a great illustration of how unaware we are oftentimes of how things work. The folly of clinging too tightly to our own vision for our own lives. We could spend the rest of the day recounting how our lives have taken various twists and turns, unexpected and unplanned, 
We could talk about education or career or family and on and on and on. The story of God's sovereign providence would go. But the question is, how do we typically respond to these things in our lives? On our best days, we give thanks to God and we recognize that He, not fate or chance, is directing our path. But far too often, even we have been Christians for many years, can look at these things as coincidence or the fruit of our own hard work, persistence, personality, ingenuity, or even simply the product of good networking. And when we seek to wrest control of our lives from the only one who's actually capable of controlling all things, or we take credit for what God has done in our lives, this is where things go off the rails. This is where we find ourselves at cross purposes with God. In reality, our lives are evidence of the sovereign grace of God, including the fact that you're here today. That you're here in this room today is not an accident. For some, it may be that you're suffering greatly. My prayer for you is that the Lord will comfort you with his wise and fatherly care for you. For others, it may be that things are going really well. My prayer is that ultimately you would be humbled by the reality of God's gracious kingly rule and his provision in your life. For some, it may be that you walked into this place this morning seeing yourself as the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. And I believe that God in his grace brought you here to be broken over the very arrogance that would lead you to that conclusion. The sin of exalting yourself and exchanging the idol of self for the glory of God, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. God, in his grace, sent Jesus who humbled himself to die on a cross according to the plan and purpose of God and who rose again so that anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone for salvation might be saved. For others of you this morning, you may be paralyzed by this theme of God's sovereignty. You might be wondering, is it even okay for me to make plans at all? Again, our plans are to be made humbly, according to what God has revealed to us in his word, understanding that God will establish our plans as they align with his purpose. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Worship God for his grace to you and give thanks to him for his provision. Later in Proverbs in chapter 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man. Isn't that the case? We've all got lots of plans and ideas of what the future may look like. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So pray, search the scriptures, seek wise counsel, and act in faith. Glorify God as you submit your plans to him. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So seeing that God is sovereign over our plans and purposes, we might ask the question, is he similarly sovereign over other people? Maybe people that seem more important than me, or maybe even over nations as a whole. Well, Proverbs anticipates and answers this question. Even kings and kingdoms are subject to to the sovereign will of God. But to see this, we need to jump over to Proverbs 21. So you can turn to Proverbs 21. 
And beginning in verse 1, we read, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, why describe the king's heart as a stream? If you've gone and walked by the Eno, you might think that's a bit of an odd illustration. It's not grand, and a stream is even smaller than a river. So why describe the king's heart as a stream? Well, one scholar notes that it takes great skill and power to direct water's chaotic nature. And if you've ever experienced water damage in your home, you recognize that it's not necessarily a mighty river that will cause damage. It can be the smallest, persistent drop that can lead to great damage. So whether great or small, water is just hard for us to contain and control. This is why Solomon uses this as an illustration of the king's heart. It's something that is unruly, something that can cause great damage if not controlled. How much more mysterious are the inner workings of the hearts of men? But the passage doesn't merely say that the king's heart is a stream, but that it's a stream in the hand of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, the hand of the Lord is used to describe the power of God. This big word, anthropomorphism, which basically just means the giving of a human characteristic to God so that we can understand him, this one teaches that God steers the king's heart according to his good pleasure. So in this verse, we see that God is skillful and powerful to direct the chaotic hearts of kings to accomplish his will. Now, one of the follies of kings has always been to ascribe their power to themselves. Has anybody ever heard of a ruler ascribing power to themselves or seeking the praise of men for what they accomplish? From Nebuchadnezzar to King Herod, this foolish self-praise has led to consequences ranging from redemptive discipline in the case of Nebuchadnezzar to sudden death in the case of Herod. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, God used his arrogance for redemptive purposes. Daniel 4 tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Daniel 4 goes on to say, While these words were still on his mouth, a voice came from heaven and pronounced judgment on him for this arrogance. God had established his kingdom. God had allowed him to build this kingdom that he was looking out on and seeking praise for. So he's told that he would be driven out into the fields and essentially become like a wild animal. And that's exactly what took place. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and became like a wild animal. But listen to how Nebuchadnezzar responds at the end of the time that was allotted for his judgment. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. See, Nebuchadnezzar came face to face with the reality that he was not king over all, though he was king over Babylon. But God graciously showed him his error and restored him so that in the end he could say that he would praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways 
are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So God graciously used this in Nebuchadnezzar's life for redemptive purposes. But what of Saul, or of Herod? For Herod, the outcome was more swift and far more somber. And we read of this account in Acts chapter 12. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him and asked for peace. So on an appointed day, he was sitting on his throne. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man in response to a speech that he made. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. Immediately. God had a purpose in this because the verse doesn't stop there. At the end, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The king was struck down because he neglected to give praise and honor and glory to God who alone is worthy. But God's word could not be stopped. You see, at key points in history, kings and emperors have played a pivotal role in the spread of the gospel under the sovereign hand of God. Whether in persecution or protection, God accomplishes his purposes through both righteous and wicked rulers. But the Lord doesn't limit his reign to just the ruler. His sovereign rule extends even to the field of battle and the rise and fall of nations. Throughout history, the Lord has used kings and nations for the prospering as well as the disciplining of his people. Time and time again, the people of Israel lost battles and were taken into captivity by God's enemies so that he could discipline them, so that they would see that he was holy and to be feared above all gods. Whether for judgment on his people or in fulfillment of his promises, kingdoms rise and fall according to the sovereign purpose of God. At the end of Proverbs 21, in verse 30 and 31, We read that no wisdom and no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So God's sovereignty is displayed in geopolitical history, but also in military history. You can read accounts again and again of many blunders in military history where commanders or generals trusted in a superior force thinking that that's all it takes to win a battle not recognizing that even in these realms God is sovereign overconfidence with examples too numerous to recount one in scripture is the seemingly impossible victory that was achieved by Gideon and his clearly inferior force in Judges 7 we're told that the Lord whittles the number of soldiers under Gideon's command from 22,000 to 300. Now, if you're going into battle, this is a bad way to start your battle plan, to take a large force and make it a smaller force. I understand that there are special forces that work for our military that are elite and do great things with few men, but this seemed like a bit of a sketchy plan to Gideon from the outset. So the Lord whittles the number of soldiers from 22,000 to 300 and says, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And Gideon seems rightly skeptical about God's plan. So God graciously says, well, let let me instill some confidence in you. Gideon enters the enemy camp with his sidekick. They go in quietly and they hear two enemy soldiers 
telling and interpreting a dream. And what Gideon realizes is that God has basically told the enemy army that Gideon is going to win as well. So Gideon's very encouraged by this, right? This would be good intel, good news for him to receive and take back to his men, which is exactly what he does. He goes back, worships, and says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into our hand. He divides the men into three groups, and in verse 19 in Judges 7, we read this. Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. They blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled. Gideon sees this happen and must think, how is this possible? How is it possible that with 300 men I have just conquered this group of Midianites? That's not what he thinks at all. He knows exactly what's happened. God has accomplished his purpose through a seemingly impossible set of circumstances, through this clearly inferior force, so that he would receive the glory and not man. You see, throughout history, God has sovereignly ruled over kings and kingdoms to accomplish his purposes. Acts 17 reminds us that the Lord has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God alone determines the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms, and this can give us great confidence today. Proverbs 21.30 Again, says, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. So rulers shouldn't exalt in their perceived autonomy and power. They shouldn't think more highly of themselves, just as we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves. This is because all authority is from God. And the sovereign place of privilege as King of kings and Lord of lords belongs to him alone. Romans 13 tells us there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Wisdom teaches us to fear God above all else and trust him even in the face of wicked rulers and the ravages of war. So today as we thumb through our news feed and are reminded of great suffering happening around the world, none of it escapes the sovereign knowledge or providential care of our great God. No king accomplishes his own purpose at the expense of God's. Oswald Chambers once said, fearing God, we need fear nothing else, which is a great thing to plaster at the top of whatever newspaper you read or whatever news feed you follow. Fearing God, we need fear nothing else. We take heart knowing that it is the Lord and his purposes that will ultimately prevail. Which leads us to the final realm for our consideration this morning, wrongs and randomness. Let's flip back over to Proverbs 16. In verse 4, we read that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 
One of the challenges of wrapping our minds around the sovereignty of God is the apparent disconnect between the actions of the wicked and the just judgment of God. Evil in this world and the goodness of God. We also see the wicked do evil things and yet many times prosper in this life. How do we square this with God's sovereign rule? How can we say at one and the same time that God is good and holy and rules over all things and yet there remains wickedness and evil, pain and suffering in this life? Well, here we're helped by Romans 9 which shows that the only answer can be an eternal one. In verse 22, Paul says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared for glory? Paul picks up this eternal line of reasoning in Ephesians 2, in verse 7, when he says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, God's purposes are so much greater than merely temporal. God's purposes stretch beyond the here and now of what we see and experience in this world. God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. The ultimate display of God's just judgment is yet to come. Judgment Day will display God's perfect plan in all its glory as his people are glorified and his enemies mortified. No one will escape that final judgment of the righteous judge of all the earth. And in the meantime, God is working out all of these streams of human history for his purposes. Now, whether Proverbs 16 is speaking of that ultimate day of trouble that the wicked are prepared for that's yet to come, or the day of trouble now, wicked acts committed by wicked people that God uses mysteriously for his purposes, the wicked will not escape or get away with their wickedness. Nor will suffering have the last word as God wipes away every tear from his people's eyes. God in his sovereign rule over all things uses even the wicked and suffering for his purposes. He will hold the wicked to account. But what about the things that appear random to us? The things that we chalk up to chance or might even say, wow, Who saw that coming? Well, God saw that coming. How do we account for these random things? Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So back where we began, we noted that nothing in this world is random or somehow catches God off guard. The flip of a coin, the death of a sparrow, even the number of hairs on our heads, all this and more is accounted for in the grand plan and purpose of God. And we can take comfort that no detail, big or small, no person, no matter how wicked, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Matthew 10 says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He goes on and says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Perhaps the greatest historical picture of this is the unfolding of the gospel 
in the life of Jesus Christ. Never has there been a greater wrong than the killing of the innocent, perfect Son of God at the hands of sinful men. Nor has there been a more explicit picture of God's sovereignty over randomness than the lot that was cast by the soldiers as they gambled for Jesus' clothes. God accomplished the fulfillment of prophecy and the salvation of his people through the most heinously wrong and seemingly random events according to the purpose of his will. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the fear of the Lord is aimed at the end of wisdom, which is the glory of God and our enjoyment of him forever. So how should we live in light of the sovereignty of God? Well, the first call for all of us is to look to Christ and be saved. And the ongoing call for those who have been saved is to rejoice in the glory of God in the gospel. Now, much ink has been spilled on God's sovereignty and salvation, so this morning, I'll just briefly address it. The sovereign God whose character and reign we've been extolling this morning is the only one capable of saving sinners from their own devices. The arrogance that re- that's required for us to see ourselves as having anything in us that would make us pleasing or acceptable to God is obscene. God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God is redeeming for himself a people. The mysterious work of God in drawing people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel is mind-boggling and beautiful. Romans 3 shows us our wretched state, lost and dead in our sins. Romans 6 tells us that this sin deserves one outcome, death. Romans 5 tells us that Christ died for sinners like us when we were enemies of the sovereign king of all. When we were his enemies, Christ died in our place. And Romans 10 tells us that everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent and believe that Christ died for your sins and rose again to give you life. For those of us who are in Christ, the call is to continue to joyfully submit our lives to the sovereign God. How can we know and do the will of God? How do we think about our plans? How do we pursue a life that's pleasing to God? Well, we can begin by obeying what God has revealed, his commandments. There is no greater commandment than to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a second one like it, to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we were to begin right there and ask, How are we doing in aligning our plans and our purposes with those two aims? How are we doing? So this morning, if we desire to live lives pleasing to God, to plan plans that are pleasing to God, begin by obedience. And then plan with open hands as we were reminded in James 4, saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that, and trust him to establish your steps. Moreover, we're to give thanks and to be content. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, A Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, that we've 
reflected on and heard referenced before, says that Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. God's sovereignty is wrapped up in those last words. His wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That we would submit ourselves to him sweetly and quietly, trusting that his will is good, marks the content Christian. Jonathan Edwards in 1720 said, the good man is happy in whatsoever condition he is in. First, because no worldly evils can do him any real hurt. Second, because of those advantages or spiritual joys and satisfactions he enjoys here. And thirdly, from the joyful hope and certain expectation of the enjoyment of the perfection of happiness eternally hereafter. Now, Jonathan Edwards' writing and language is dense. So Tim Keller helpfully simplifies, summarizes, and clarifies this for us by saying, our bad things turn out for our good. Our good things cannot be lost, and our best things are yet to come. What hope for us as Christians that we can be happy in God in this life and look forward to that day when we will understand perfectly God's plans and purposes. We've all heard the saying, hindsight is twenty twenty, which is really just a clever way of saying that we only see things most clearly in retrospect. But consider how much more this will be true of our perfected minds in heaven. In fact, consider that this is the only time we'll fully understand God's sovereign actions in our lives. It's only now that we can look back through the lens of a first birthday party and the first year of life and the fact that nine months to the day after that phone call, a little boy was born who would enter a family prepared for him and that family would be ours. We had no way to know that when the second phone call came. God is good. And not every story has an outcome that we'll understand like this in this life. But God is good. In 1675, Samuel Rodigast captured this hope-filled vision of the sovereignty of God in his hymn that's worth quoting at length. Whate'er my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall, wherefore to him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent, his hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn a new sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow need or death be mine yet I am not forsaken 
My Father's care is around me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. Truly God actively rules over all things for our good and his glory. Nothing escapes his sovereign rule. And rather than being a crushing burden, rightly understood, the sovereignty of God can free us to joyfully submit our entire existence to the only one who can lead us through many dangers, toils, and snares. And finally, safely home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. And Father, we thank you that your plans and your purposes will not fail. Father, this morning, in this room, are represented great joys and trials, sorrows, sufferings, your providence at work. Teach us to trust you, to obey you, to look forward to the day when we will see clearly what you have done through your sovereign power for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.